All right, well, thank you guys all for joining us today and happy Friday. Um, I'm very, very happy to have Dr. Carolyn Kelfie here with us today to give us grand rounds. Um, Dr. Kelfie is a professor in medicine and anesthesia at UC San Francisco, um, where she also works in the intensive care unit. She did her undergraduate training at Yale and then went to the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine before she went to the UCSF. Um, where she's been uh, since then. She's an expert in acute respiratory distress syndrome. She's also an expert in the adaptive trial design. Uh, I first heard Carolyn speak at ATS and was very inspired by the work that she did. I felt like she was um, able to, to clearly and easily explain adaptive trial designs, which is more and more what we're seeing in clinical trials, especially in all these COVID-19 trials. Um, and so I'm very, very happy to have her here today. So uh, Carolyn, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, sure thing. And thank you so much, Andy, for the invitation to be here. I really uh, I'm honored to have the chance to talk with you guys. All right, so uh, these are my disclosures. So here's an overview of what I'm gonna talk about today. I'm gonna start with just talking about the issue of heterogeneity within ARDS and why it's uh, potentially a problem when we're trying to study new therapies. I'll talk about the work that our group has been doing over the past five or seven years or so, um, studying ARDS phenotypes with divergent outcomes and responses to treatment. I'll talk about the newer work our group's done more recently on parsimonious models for phenotype classification, including some work on implementation of real-time phenotyping in COVID-19 ARDS. And then I'll spend the sort of second half of the talk, um, as per my discussions with Andy ahead of time, talking about uh, adaptive platform trial designs uh, and why they may be useful uh, and give you a little bit of uh, uh, history as to how I got involved in this area and talk about our new ice by COVID trail. All right, so I don't have to convince this group that ARDS is an important problem and that mortality still remains high. I think we're all familiar with the Lung Safe study, the most recent epidemiology study uh, of ARDS of 30,000 almost patients admitted over four weeks to ICUs around the world, showing that ARDS represents 23% of patients requiring mechanical ventilation and that mortality is still 30 to 40% at 28 days, which is not what we would want for any of ourselves or our patients. And unfortunately, the list of clinical therapies that have been tried and failed for ARDS is a long one. This is just a partial list of some of the many medications that have uh, apparently cured mouse ARDS and have been effective in many cases in early stage clinical trials only to fail when it comes to larger scale trials. And I put a little asterisk by corticosteroids in the, um, uh, with respect to the most recent data on COVID-19. We can talk about that in the questions if there's interest and time. Um, but really this has been a litany of failures, right? We have no effective pharmacotherapies that treat patients with ARDS generally. And I don't think that's because we fail to understand the biology of the syndrome well. This is from Taylor Thompson's great review in the New England Journal a few years ago. Since ARDS was first described now uh, 53 years ago, we have uh, actually developed quite a bit of understanding of the biology of this syndrome, the importance of lung epithelial and endothelial injury, endothelial barrier disruption, flooding of the alveolus with inflammatory cells that exude um, inflammatory cytokines, as well as the development of platelet aggregation and microthrombi. So we, we understand quite a bit about this, but we've been unable to translate that into effective therapies. And part of the reason may be that our patients have heterogeneous clinical phenotypes as well as heterogeneous biology. 
this slide shows chest radiographs from three patients with ARDS enrolled in one of our observational cohorts at UCSF, a 74-year-old man with myeloma and pneumonia, a 37-year-old woman with cholangitis centrale, and a 24-year-old woman with cardiac arrest and aspiration. And you can see that there's great differences in the clinical and radiographic phenotypes of these patients and potentially in the biology as well. Here's two more patients with uh, more recent presentations. Um, you can see pretty marked radiographic differences. And actually one of these patients has vaping associated lung injury um, related to inhalation of vitamin E acetate and the other has COVID-19. So it makes sense that this heterogeneity may be confounding our attempts to find effective treatments. So would reducing some of this heterogeneity potentially solve the problem? And this is sort of this classic lumping versus splitting debate in medicine, right? If we split more effectively, might that help us to find new treatments? And we can make that sound fancier by calling it precision medicine, right? So trying to determine which strategies work best in which groups of people. I just want to remind us that we had President Obama here with a model of DNA, double helix. This is when he was announcing the precision medicine initiative. Um, but it's not just about DNA, right? It's also about trying to match therapies and patient biology more closely together. And if the goal here is to eventually get to precision clinical trials that target specific subsets of patients, we have to really start by understanding the clinical and biologic heterogeneity within the syndromes. And so, sorry, let me have to minimize my zoom window there. Um, so hormone receptor status in breast cancer is a, is a great example of this, right? We no longer think of breast cancer as just one disease. We understand that patients with different ERPR status and HER2 status respond differently to treatments. TH2 versus high versus low asthma is another example. And then ultimately, we would hope that with that type of understanding of heterogeneity, we could eventually get to biomarker-based treatment assignment. And we'll talk more about that, um, about the ICE-BY-2 trial in particular in breast cancer later on in the presentation. So how do we understand the clinical and biologic heterogeneity within a syndrome? Well, our group has been using an approach called latent class analysis. Um, and I'm gonna tell you, this is like the one slide really on statistics. So I'll try to make it um, as understandable as possible. But basically this is a type of statistical analysis that's based on mixture modeling. And it's based on a hypothesis that there are distinct subclasses within a broader group of patients. So if you see these patients here on the right with the solid line, it asks, does that data distribution better fit with the hypothesis that there's one group of patients or actually two groups, three groups, four groups? And you can see here that the dotted lines suggest, well, maybe there's actually three groups of patients underlying this distribution. Now with modern computers, we can ask this question simultaneously for many different variables at one time and actually test a hypothesis regarding the best fitting number of classes. Unlike regression-based models, this type of approach can be independent of clinical outcomes. So you can focus just on patient characteristics, for instance, at baseline when they enroll in a clinical trial, not look at their clinical outcomes and say, just with that baseline data, is there evidence that there are distinct subgroups of patients here? So we've applied this approach now to five different randomized controlled trial cohorts, the ARMA trial, um, low tidal volume trial, the alveoli trial of high versus low PEEP, the FACT clinical trial, the HARP2 trial of simvastatin for ARDS, and the SALES trial of resuvastatin. And in all five of these cohorts, we found strong statistical evidence that a two-class or two-phenotype model is a better fit for the data than a one-class model. 
We use clinical and biomarker data from pre-randomization only, about 35 to 40 variables, about six to eight of which are what I'd call research biomarkers, and I'll show you some of those on the next slide. Consistently, about 70% of this group falls into the phenotype we've described as hypoinflammatory and 30% into the group we've called hyperinflammatory for reasons I'll show you momentarily. And as the figure on the right shows, ARDS risk factor differs between these phenotypes, but does not discriminate between the two phenotypes. So if you have a patient with pneumonia, for instance, um, they're equally likely to be in either phenotype. Patients with sepsis are more likely to be in the hyperinflammatory phenotype, but still a significant proportion in the hypoinflammatory phenotype. This figure shows the continuous variables that were used to identify the phenotypes on the x-axis. And the y-axis shows the standardized variable value, which is basically a way of descaling the variables by setting the mean at zero and the standard deviation at one. And these variables are ranked from the greatest positive distribution between the phenotypes on this side to the greatest negative difference between the phenotypes on this side. All right, so the red line shows the mean value in the hyperinflammatory and the blue in the hyper and the hypoinflammatory. So why did we call them hyperinflammatory? Well, to be frank, I kind of regret that um, epithet because I'm not really sure that inflammation is the driving cardinal feature, but we termed it that because the plasma levels of inflammatory markers are higher in this group. So we see higher levels of IL-6 and IL-8, TNF receptor one and PI one. This group has lower levels of plasma bicarbonate, protein C, which is a marker of disrupted coagulation, and systolic blood pressure. Interestingly, there are some really important variables that are here um, in the middle that don't differ consistently between the phenotypes, including things like age, white blood cell count, P to F ratio is here. It typically does not differ uh, very much between the phenotypes, so that was interesting to us as well. Phenotype assignment appears to be stable over several days. So in both the ARMA and the alveoli trial, we see a strong signal for two classes present on study day three as well. And in both of those studies, 94% of the patients stayed in the same class from day zero to day three. So if you see in this table here, if you were in class one on day zero, you had a 95% probability of being in class one at day three, which indicates a, that this is at least stable over this relatively short time window, and so therefore could potentially be targeted in a clinical trial, and also that this is not some kind of epiphenomenon, most likely of timing. All right, so recall that I told you that we were focused on uh, data from clinical, uh, from the time of randomization and not including clinical outcomes in identifying our classes. So we then said, okay, how do classes uh, how do clinical outcomes differ between these two groups? And what we've seen, and this figure shows 90-day mortality, but it's consistent for other clinical outcomes, is that the hyperinflammatory group consistently has much worse clinical outcomes. So you can see that over these five trials ranging from the mid-90s to the mid-2010s, that hyperinflammatory group has significantly and pretty dramatically worse clinical outcomes compared to the hypoinflammatory group. But I think the reason we've been particularly interested in these phenotypes is not just that they're associated with poor outcomes, because there are frankly a lot of prognostic factors in ARDS that can be identified, but that they seem to identify groups that respond to differently to treatment. So we were lucky to be able to analyze these questions in the setting of randomized control trials. So we have randomly assigned therapies. And we can see that these two groups seemed to respond differently to high versus low PEEP, to conservative versus liberal fluids, and to simvastatin versus placebo.
I'm going to show you this data in a little more detail. So recall that the alveoli trial compared a high to a low PEEP strategy in 549 patients. This was a negative trial. And we said, well, is there evidence of response to randomly assigned PEEP within either phenotype? And what we found is what's called an interaction or effect modification, which means that the effect of the therapy seems to differ based on the phenotype. So you can see here for the patients in the hypo-inflammatory phenotype, which was the majority of the patients, that patients randomized to high PEEP had a higher mortality, and it was actually the opposite in the hyper-inflammatory group. We saw a similar pattern in the FACT trial, which compared a fluid liberal to a fluid conservative strategy. Now recall there was no mortality difference overall, but that there were more ventilator-free days in the fluid conservative arm. What we found here is that the effect of fluid therapy on death seemed to differ by phenotype. So if you were in that larger hypoinflammatory group, mortality was higher with a fluid liberal strategy and the opposite in the hyperinflammatory group. Now, at this point, we wondered, well, maybe these are just sicker patients. Is this some kind of surrogate for severity of disease? But we did not find any significant interactions with Apache score, which, as you know, is a surrogate, uh, or I should say a summary marker of severity for either PEEP or fluids. Okay, next we went on to the Simvastatin HARP2 trial. This is a picture of my friend and colleague Danny McCauley, who led this trial, a randomized control trial of Simvastatin for ARDS conducted in the UK and Ireland in 540 patients. Simvastatin 80 milligrams versus placebo, and yet again another negative clinical trial in ARDS with no difference in ventilator free days or mortality. This is the original survival curve uh, that was published in the New England Journal. And when we stratified the survival curve, curve by phenotype, we found something very interesting. So first of all, we found a sign highly significant difference in 28-day survival. And what you can see is that the patients in that hypo-inflammatory phenotype, who are in these two blue lines, had pretty similar outcomes, regardless of whether they were randomized to placebo or simvastatin. But for the patients in the hyperinflammatory subphenotype, those patients that were randomized to simvastatin had significantly improved survival with a p-value of 0 0.008. Now, this should not be interpreted to mean that you should go out and um, treat patients with simvastatin. This is a secondary analysis that needs prospective validation. But it really suggested to us that there might actually be this treatment-responsive subgroup that's been hiding in this overall heterogeneous population of ARDS patients. Now, it's important to say we also tested this hypothesis in the sales trial of resuvastatin, and we did not find any significant difference. So there was no difference in uh, survival by, um, by treatment and, uh, and uh, subphenotype. Why might that be? Well, it might be that the finding in the HARP2 trial was spurious. It may be dose-related. It turns out that the resuvastatin dose that was administered was actually probably subtherapeutic in about half of patients. I actually think the most likely explanation is that it's a difference in the lipophilicity of the statins. We didn't know much about this until we started digging into this issue, but statins uh, exist on a spectrum of lipophilicity. The more lipophilic statins have higher extrahepatic tissue penetration, uh, and simvastatin is one of the most lipophilic statins, whereas those that are more hydrophilic have more hepatoselectivity, and rosuvastatin is on the other extreme end of that. And there's actually really considerable preclinical data supporting simvastatin uh, in uh, ameliorating lung injury, um, but it's really almost exclusively with these lipophilic statins. So whether or not this is the true explanation, I think we won't know until we actually do an RCT and can determine whether we can replicate this finding prospectively. Um, but this is our sort of hypothesis.
All right, now our group is certainly not the only one that has been interested in this question. There are other approaches that other groups have taken to identifying phenotypes of ARDS, most prominently the MARS consortium led by Lua Boss and Marcus Schultz in the Netherlands. They took an observational cohort of ARDS patients and measured a variety of plasma biomarkers that you can see on the bottom right here and performed hierarchical cluster analysis. And found that the uh, patients seemed to cluster into two groups, which they termed reactive. You can see here on the heat map in the top, uh, and uninflamed, which generally had lower levels of these biomarkers down in the bottom. This column here, which is maybe hard to see if your screen is small, represents death in the ICU, and death was significantly more common in that reactive group. They've gone on to do some really interesting biology-focused work um, in these patients. Uh, including the use of a microarray to compare whole blood gene expression in 210 patients that were already classified as reactive versus uninflamed. And they found that 29% of genes were significantly different between the two phenotypes, which is really a pretty um, impressively high proportion. The genes that seemed to be preferentially um, expressed at higher levels in the, hyper inf uh, in the reactive group, I should say, were genes associated with oxidative phosphorylation and cholesterol metabolism. And I note several genes associated with neutrophil biology like MMP8 and lipocalin 2 pardon. And then the genes that were expressed at relatively lower levels in that group uh, included genes related to MAP kinase 4, cell proliferation, and differentiation. Interestingly, when they performed a principal component analysis and clustered their two ARDS phenotypes with septic patients without ARDS and healthy controls, you can see here that the septic patients without ARDS clustered quite closely with this ARDS uninflamed group, leaving this reactive group sort of more off to the side. Okay, so I've told you earlier that I, I think our goal here should be to think about how we can get to precision clinical, clinical trials. This figure is taken from a review that Nula Meyer and I wrote for Lancet Respiratory Medicine a few years ago. And we've really done some of this work already in terms of discovery methods and candidate marker analyses and using novel analytic techniques to try to identify new phenotypes. Um, but there's several barriers before we can get to precision clinical trials. Most importantly, that if I left you here, you'd think, well, how could I possibly identify these patients at the bedside, right? You can't do a latent class analysis on one patient in front of you. So our group's been working for the past couple of years on efficient methods to try to identify these phenotypes prospectively. And this is work that's been led by a terrific former postdoctoral fellow of mine named Pratik Sinha, who's now a faculty member at Washington University in St. Louis. What Pratik did is he combined three of these data sets that I've told you about, ARMA, Alveoli, and FACT, into one large data set of over 2,000 patients. And then he used a variety of machine learning methods, including random forest, lasso regression, and bagging, to identify the most important six variables that seemed to contribute the most to phenotype identification. He then used these six variables to construct logistic regression models predicting class with between two and six predictors and compared them with the gold standard of latent class. And then he locked the model coefficients in the derivation data set. We then went on to validate this in three independent ARDS trials cohorts uh, that I'll tell you about the sales cohort, HARP2, um, and the START study. So this slide shows the performance in the first and largest validation cohort, which is the sales clinical trial of resuvastatin. And here, these are the best 
outperforming three and four variable models. So the best three variables were IL-8, bicarbonate, and protein C, and vasopressors was the fourth additional variable. And when we compared these in the sales trial of phenotype by LCA, performance was really quite good. So area under the curve of 0.94 for the three variable model and 0.95 for the four variable model. But actually multiple models performed quite well. These were the top six variables for classifying the, the uh, phenotypes. Uh, and you can see that um, different combinations of three and four of these uh, markers actually had pretty strong areas under the curve in the validation data set. We used one of these alternate three variable models in the HARP2 trial, which again was the simvastatin trial because these were the data that were available in that trial, IL-6, TNFR1, and vasopressor use. That model seemed to perform quite well for comparison to the LCA model with an area under the curve of 0.92. But perhaps more importantly, we were actually able to identify the significant difference in survival with the parsimonious model. Because if you can't do that, then it's gonna be really hard to use a model like this going forward in clinical trials. This figure uh, on the upper right shows the survival curve stratified by phenotype using the three variable model. The last external validation uh, study that we used was the START study, which was a small phase 2A trial of allogeneic mesenchymal stromal cells for ARDS. Now, this is a small study of only 60 patients, so we were not able to do a latent class analysis to compare the classification, um, but we just sought to use the model to assess face validity. And using the three-variable model, we classified 74% of the patients as hypoinflammatory, 26% as hypoinflammatory, and you can see um, that the mortality was quite different with that hyperinflammatory group having a mortality of 73% at 60 days compared to 19%. Okay. So at this point, I'm gonna switch gears a little bit. Everything I've showed you previously has been published. Um, this data has actually just been published, but is much newer and addresses the question of how we would think about actually implementing this work. Because again, even if I gave you this biomarker model, you would, if you wanted to go to the bedside, you'd say, great, how am I supposed to measure IL-8 exactly? That's not something that I can actually measure. So we've been working to try to implement real-time phenotyping. And it turned out we actually had an opportunity to do this in COVID ARDS. So Danny McCauley, who I mentioned earlier, uh, has been working with our group and with colleagues in the UK and Northern Ireland to set up a, a observational clinical trial called the FIND study uh, to test a real-time uh, assay for phenotyping ARDS patients. And we've been working on this for now a couple of years, and the trial was getting ready to launch basically in January of this year and then COVID hit. And it's uh, obviously been quite a challenge uh, in many ways for operationalizing this trial, which was projected to be a trial of 450 patients with real-time phenotyping. Uh, but I guess the silver lining of it was that we were actually able to apply this work in patients with COVID-19 ARDS, thanks to some terrific collaborators who were actually able to enroll patients amidst all the chaos of the first wave in the UK including Tomas Akmani uh, at University of Cardiff, David Breely uh, in London, and again, Pratik Sinha, my former postdoc, led the analyses of this work. And it was published in Lancet Respiratory, uh, I think last month or the month prior. 
So we phenotyped 39 patients with COVID-19 ARDS and performed prospective classification of the phenotypes using a novel point-of-care assay that's manufactured by a company called Randox in Northern Ireland. This assay allows us to do real-time measurement of IL-6 and TNFR1 bicarbonates obviously available from the patient's clinical labs. And then we had patients assigned in real-time to phenotypes. So how this would work is at the sites, they would actually conduct the assay in real-time, enter the data into a database, which would then calculate the phenotype assignment, but the sites were actually kept blinded to that assignment to make sure that it didn't influence their management in any way. And then the patients were followed for in-hospital mortality. This table just shows the demographics of the patients. Now this is a you know, small study, 39 patients, 17 of whom did not survive, male predominant as we've seen commonly in COVID, diverse race ethnicities, and very sick with a high prevalence of vasopressor use and invasive ventilation at baseline. So the first thing we noticed was that the prevalence of the hyperinflammatory phenotype was actually quite low in COVID-19 ARDS. So, <clears throat> pardon me. Recall that this parsimonious model is really a regression model. And what do regression models spit out? <clears throat> Pardon me. They spit out a probability. So they generate a probability of the hyperinflammatory phenotype. And the median probability of the hyperinflammatory phenotype in this patient group was 3%. So really a quite low probability. Now you can apply different cut points to a model like this, and what we have done in the past is either used a cut point of 0.5, meaning if your probability is over 50%, you're assigned to the hyperinflammatory group. And if we did that, only 10% of the patients fell into the hyperinflammatory group. If we used a cut point of 0.27, which was determined from the work that Pratik had done previously to be the optimal cut point for this model using a Yowden index, Still, only 21% of the patients were hyperinflammatory. Now, whether we used either of those cut points, the hyperinflammatory group certainly had a higher mortality than the hypoinflammatory group. But we noticed that this was really a, a lower probability than we would have expected otherwise. And for the rest of the data analyses I'm going to show you, we went with that more uh, sensitive cut point of 0.27 so that we would have more patients to work with. So, one of the first analyses we did was to try to compare to a group of patients with similar age and a similar etiology of lung injury. So we, we were, and, and these were also patients on whom we had piloted this rapid assay so that we could know that the differences we were observing were not assay-related differences, but were actually differences in the underlying patients. So we compared the, the 39 COVID patients to 39 matched patients from the HARP2 cohort that were matched on both age and on pneumonia as etiology of lung injury. And what we found, interestingly, as you can see here on the figure on the left, is that IL-6 levels were similar to the HARP2 ARDS patients. TNF receptor 1 levels were actually lower in the COVID patients, as were Apache scores. Creatinine tended to be higher, and interestingly, platelets also tended to be higher in this group. Now this is the mortality, and I think we have to take this with a little bit of grain of salt because this mortality data, this is all patients that were enrolled in March and April in the first wave in the UK. And as we're becoming increasingly aware, mortality rates from that era are, are probably higher in general than the mortality rates we're seeing now. Um, but nevertheless, this is the data we have. So these are the 39 COVID patients compared to the 39 matched patients from HARP2 and the overall patients from HARP2. <clears throat> So what you can see, first of all, is that even using this more liberal cutoff, 
of 0.27 to assign patients to the hyperinflammatory group, we see a lower prevalence of this hyperinflammatory phenotype in COVID-related ARDS. We also see a markedly higher mortality, though I think we have to be careful for the reasons I mentioned not to make too much of that. I just want to show you one quick little data in progress slide. This has not been published, but this is data from uh, some COVID-19 and typical ARDS patients that we've enrolled here at UCSF. This heat map is actually not gene expression data, but it's proteomic data from a, a technology known as Olink that provides um, sort of very highly multiplexed proteomic analyses. The columns here represent patients. The rows represent proteins, okay? And I want you to focus on this row here, which is the diagnosis of the patients. So patients with hyperinflammatory ARDS are shown in pink, patients with hypoinflammatory ARDS are shown in blue, and COVID patients are shown in green. So what this figure shows basically is that the COVID patients are clustering with the hypoinflammatory patients, ARDS patients, and it's basically recapitulating the findings from the UK cohort to suggest that these patients have a more hypo relative to hyperinflammatory picture. Okay, so interim summary, where do we stand in 2020? So we've reported these two clinical biologic phenotypes of ARDS using latent class analysis in five randomized control trial cohorts. We see this wide divergence in clinical outcomes and differential responses to therapies and secondary analyses of RCTs. We have many unanswered questions about these phenotypes, including what are the true biologic drivers of the phenotypes? Is it really inflammation or is that just sort of an epiphenomenon that we're seeing? What's the lung-specific biology of these phenotypes? Everything I've told you so far has really been about plasma, um, but what are the differences in pulmonary biology? How much of these are dr driven by heritable versus environmental components? How much of this is driven by a person's genetic makeup versus the pathogen or their specific insult? What's the relationship to sepsis phenotypes that have been described? I have shown you that identification of the phenotypes using these parsimonious models seems to be accurate and is likely going to be feasible at the bedside soon. So with all of these questions, when will we be ready for clinical trials? So we're sort of at a, a point where two roads diverge in the wood. Uh, and are we ready to embark upon clinical trials with the knowledge we have at hand, um, or are we not? And if we do embark upon clinical trials, how do we ensure that we don't fall into a massive uh, hole in the road and uh, uh, you know, come across some massive unanticipated pitfall. So how could we potentially move forward? I'm gonna pose four different options. Well, we could continue the status quo with clinical trials that are stratified post hoc by phenotype and say we need to learn more about these um, and we're going to do that in clinical trials, but we're gonna stratify them post hoc by phenotypes that we identified. We could pursue clinical trials that target the hyperinflammatory phenotypes, since that seems to potentially be this treatment responsive group hiding inside the broader picture. We could do prospective clinical trials with an a priori plan to assess phenotype in real time and do stratified analyses. Or we could pursue adaptive trial designs that assess phenotype in real time and adjust randomization iteratively. So I'm gonna tell you why I think we should cross the first two off the list and then talk a little bit more about adaptive trial designs and how we could think about moving forward with that approach. So why not continue what we've been doing? Post hoc analyses of completed trials have given us a lot of insight, but these are limited. They're always prone to the critique of subgroup analysis, right? 
Um, these are post hoc analyses and we're never really going to know if they're accurate until they're prospectively tested. It's very time consuming to assess phenotype after study completion, reanalyze the data. We've been working on doing this in my group for uh, the ROSE trial of neuromuscular blockade versus no neuromuscular blockade that was published last year in the New England Journal. And we've been a bit slowed down by COVID, but just to say it takes a long time to measure all these biomarkers in a thousand patients do all of the requisite analyses. And you have to enroll really a large number of patients to have enough power to identify differential treatment responses. So that is to me unappealing. Why not tar target this hyperinflammatory uh, group only? And I've certainly been approached by a number of pharmaceutical companies suggesting that they have a new anti-inflammatory that might be good for this hyperinflammatory group. But really, hyperinflammatory is a gross oversimplification, if not potentially a misnomer. We don't truly understand the biology of this phenotype. We have essentially no insight into lung-specific biology or pathogenesis. And the assumptions we make about what therapies may or may not work might be completely wrong. Now, the possible exception for this would be if stratified analyses of prior trials have shown evidence of differential benefit, e.g., simvastatin, right? Then you could talk me into a trial that targets the hyperinflammatory patients only. Uh, but I want to tell you a cautionary tale about recombinant IL-1 RA and sepsis. Um, and when I used to show these slides pre-COVID, people were like, what? What's IL-1 RA? Now people know what IL-1 RA is, right? This is anakinra, which was tried for patients with sepsis back in the 1990s. And Nula Meyer at Penn uh, had the brilliant idea to ask whether the mortality benefit of recombinant human IL-1-RA might benefit based on the initial uh, plasma endogenous IL-1-RA concentration. And here's what she found. So she actually found that it did differ uh, based on the endogenous plasma IL-1-RA concentration, but in the opposite direction of what she'd anticipated. So it turned out that if you had low endogenous levels of IL-1-RA and we gave you more recombinant IL-1-RA, patients actually did worse. And it was actually the patients with high plasma IL-1-RA who seemed to benefit from more IL-1-RA. So I show this just to emphasize that our understanding of these really complex immunologic relationships in these patients is very limited. And we have to be, uh, I think, very cautious about making assumptions uh, about this. And I mean, tocilizumab in, in COVID is another great example of this, right? Just because IL-6 is elevated compared to normals doesn't necessarily mean that blocking it is going to be effective. All right, so what about the third option, prospective phenotype assessment and a priori stratified analysis. Now we've done some prospective phenotype validation. I'd like to do more, um, but if we can actually continue to be able to measure these phenotypes in real time, that would really lay the groundwork for a future phenotype targeted trial. This would avoid the critique of subgroup and secondary analyses. And it's also really consistent with what the FDA recommends for clinical trials. They really want to see that non-responders don't in fact respond, right? If you only test a therapy in a group of uh, a subgroup of patients that you think will respond, but you haven't actually proven that it doesn't work in the non-responders, then you don't really know the answer to that question. All right, and then finally, adaptive clinical trials. So what are adaptive clinical trials? Adaptive just means that you're able to make iterative changes in the trial design based on the interim results. And that may be in a variety of different parameters. One might be adjusting randomization probabilities based on the outcomes while the trial is ongoing. It might be adjusting the sample size. It might be adjusting the drugs that are in the platform trial. 
And this approach can be combined with biomarker subtype strategies to learn over the course of a trial which treatments are best for which subtype in a way that I'll show you in a moment. And then it can also be combined with platform designs to enable rapid evaluation of multiple candidate drugs. There's a nice review of, adapted tri of adaptive trials in the New England Journal from 2006. And this schema shows a sort of a very simplistic adaptive trial design. Whoops, sorry about that. So if you have a, a, a study here, which is stratified into subgroup S and subgroup S prime, you begin with both, treat, both groups being randomized 50-50 to treatment and control, and then do an interim analysis. If there's no response in both groups, you can stop for futility. If there's response in both groups, you can continue as planned. But if you only see a response in one subgroup, you could continue with that subgroup only and then assign all remaining patients um, to that subgroup and do your final analysis, pardon me, only in that subgroup. All right, so in this roads diverging in the wood, I think the two potential paths are prospective trials with real-time phenotype assessment and adaptive trials with real-time phenotype assessment. So with that in mind, let me tell you about how I actually really got interested in this whole uh, area. I knew I was interested in molecular phenotyping of heterogeneous diseases, and I took a sabbatical two years ago and was able to take my sabbatical with Laura Esserman, who's pictured here, who's a breast oncology surgeon at UCSF and has been the PI of the ISPY2 trial, which is really the paradigm of an adaptive platform trial design. And I'm going to tell you briefly about the ISPY2 uh, design, and then I'll talk about how we've actually applied these, these methods now in COVID. So ISPY2 started now over 10 years ago as really the one of the first trials to, to, um, to take this approach. And at the time, Laura tells me that many, many, many people told her she was entirely crazy and that this would actually never work. Um, but I think since then, uh, people have come around to see the value here. So this is a trial that enrolls high-risk breast cancer patients. It's a phase two clinical trial of novel agents for neoadjuvant treatment. And if you're like me, the first two months of sabbatical, I was like, neoadjuvant, right? What does that mean? It means before surgery, okay? So they find a high-risk tumor, they give chemotherapy before surgery, and the idea here is that they can actually see which chemotherapeutic agents or you know, immunologic uh, immunotherapies actually work to shrink the tumor. It's a platform trial. We'll talk about that in a moment. So it means that there's sort of one master protocol and you can move new drugs in and out. And then this is the part that really was interesting and appealing to me. It is an adaptive randomization. So patients are randomized based on their biomarker subtype. And then they actually have response adaptive randomization where the randomization probabilities are adjusted during the trial based on the outcomes. It uses a Bayesian statistical model. So the result is not an effect size and p-value like we're used to, but instead is the probability of a positive phase three clinical trial. So this is how it works. So a new participant is enrolled, they're randomized to either the control arm or one of several experimental arms. They have a short-term outcome assessed, which I'll talk about in a moment, and then the predictive probabilities of response in each subgroup are uh, randomized. And I should have said here that prior, at the time of enrollment, the patient's biomarker profile is assessed. And we'll talk about that more in a moment. So these predictive probabilities are updated based on the biomarker profile, and then their randomization probabilities can be updated as well. So that over time, 
patients in a biomarker subgroup that seems to respond well to a certain therapy can be preferentially randomized to that therapy. So it's also sort of a patient-centered approach, which I think has really been important in the breast cancer community in getting buy-in to, uh, to this design. It has a master protocol. So that means um, that there is one protocol and then new agents are slotted in. And the analogy that Derek Angus always uses to describe this type of trial is instead of building a stadium, having a game in the stadium and then tearing down the stadium and then building a new stadium for the next game, you build a stadium and then you have multiple different games in the stadium. So enrollment does not stop during agent transition. You just make a new appendix that's approved by the FDA and by the IRBs, and you have this, this master design uh, that works for all of the different agents. This is actually a little bit of an old slide, but shows uh, some of the many drugs that have been evaluated uh, in the ISPY2 trial going up to 2019. They've now done over 20 trials that have either graduated for potential efficacy, stopped for toxicity or futility, uh, or are ongoing. And it's really important that you have a, prime, a, um, a relatively proximal endpoint in order to adapt, right? You can't adapt your randomization unless you have a, a quick endpoint to adapt to. And so they've developed this in the setting of the ISPY2 trial uh, pathologic complete response, which basically means that at the time they do the surgery, there's no residual invasive cancer in the breast or lymph nodes. This is an early surrogate endpoint, but as you can see here, it's highly predictive of three-year event-free survival with the PCR group in blue and the non-PCR group in red. Um, and I mentioned this just because if we're going to be talking about adaptive trial design, it's really important to recognize that you can't do a great uh, response adaptive randomization if your endpoint is three years away, right? You need to have an endpoint that's proximal in order to inform your ongoing randomization. And then, as I mentioned before, this endpoint is assessed within 10 pre-specified biomarker signatures that are by a hormone receptor subtype and also by the MammaPrint score, which is a gene expression array uh, that identifies certain high-risk uh, features of breast cancer. Okay, I know you guys are critical care docs, so we'll stop talking about breast cancer, but I just wanted to give you that sort of background on, um, on the design before I talk about ICE by COVID, which is the new trial. Um, that we have launched. So this is a trial that I've launched with Laura, as well as with my good friend and colleague Kathleen Liu, who is a nephrology critical care doc uh, at UCSF. And this is an adaptive platform trial for critically ill patients with COVID. So this is the clinical trial design. We're targeting patients who are WHO COVID level five or higher, which basically means that they are on six liters or more of oxygen. Patients, uh, these are all inpatients, obviously, who are screened and randomized to a backbone of remdesivir and dexamethasone, plus one of up to four therapies. And we have four agents in the trial at this time. We have a master protocol that's been approved by the FDA, and then each drug has its own amendment. And I'll tell you about the drugs in a moment. The primary outcome of the trial is time to recovery, meaning sustained COVID status of less than or equal to four which basically means that you're off, you're on nasal cannula oxygen or less, stratified by initial COVID status with secondary outcomes of mortality, total time on ventilator and adverse events. This is a phase two trial, so we're looking for big signals. I mentioned our primary endpoint already. We're using a Bayesian statistical design and that allows us to have an adaptive sample size of between 50 to 125 subjects per arm. So 
agents that are either spectacular success or failure can um, be terminated after 50 agents, and agents that seem to be more promising can go up to 125 subjects per arm. Now, we're not currently stratifying by biomarker profile because we felt like it was too early in COVID to really know what the, the most effective way to do that would be, but we're obtaining biospecimens so that we can do additional biological phenotyping of these patients and start thinking about how we could implement this going forward. Again, this is our primary outcome, the time to recovery on the WHO COVID status scale. Why did we choose this? Because it's patient-centered. It's being used widely across COVID trials. Um, it has enhanced power compared to a, a binary endpoint and that it's time to recovery. And it helps to standardize the trial, particularly given that ICU definitions um, may be somewhat fluid in resource limited settings. We have eight sites open around the country with an additional five in process. If you guys are interested in being a site, let's talk. We have uh, 108 patients enrolled in the interventional arm so far. And we also have a real world evidence observational arm as well that has 60 patients in it. Um, we're actively working to expand to COVID hotspots and engage care no networks. We're working with VARDA and Operation Warp Speed, um, as well as the Clinical uh, Trials Improvement Initiative led out of uh, Duke by Mark McClellan and colleagues to try to really expand this trial broadly. And these are our uh, current four agents, which I'm happy to talk more about in the questions if people are curious. We have a catabant, which is a bradykinin antagonist, razoprotofib, which is a Ty2 agonist um, that works on the sort of um, ANG2, ANG1 axis. Senecrivorock, which is a CCR2-5 inhibitor, and a premolast, which is a PDE4 inhibitor. Now, we are certainly not the only adaptive platform trial. This, uh, which used to seem like a novelty, has uh, really become much more prominent in COVID-19. Of course, the recovery trial, which demonstrated the benefit of dexamethasone and remap-cap are both also adaptive platform trials. What are the pros of this? Well, I've sort of already talked about a lot of this. You can seamlessly add or remove agents without rebuilding your entire trial infrastructure. So it's really efficient, especially in a situation like COVID where there's a lot of unknowns, especially as we were starting this trial back in April. It facilitates team science and a collaborative approach. Uh, and as I mentioned, you can add response adaptive randomization. And, and Laura really emphasizes that you don't have to know the best biomarker signatures to start with, you can actually learn as you go and let the data teach you. There are some important cons. You have to really have pretty uniform eligibility requirements across your agents. You can't have a lot of agents that, for instance, um, you know, you can't uh, give to patients if they have mild AKI because then you really need to exclude that from all arms. So that's something to think about carefully. Standard of care may evolve over time. We've definitely observed that in COVID and we've been able to adapt our backbone to that. And you need a sustained funding source because obviously you're going to be pulling in a lot of new agents and so you have to have the ability to have sustained funding for something like this. All right, so in the last couple of minutes, I just want to talk about some conclusions and future directions. And I want to leave you with this quote from George Box, the famous British statistician who said, all models are wrong, but some are useful. So we can take a group of ARDS patients and we can use ILA, protein C, and bicarb, and we can stratify them into two groups. I've shown you this, but what happens when we add additional layers of biologic complexity? Genomics, metabolomics, proteomics, microbiome. Well, inevitably, we are going to identify more complexity. Every patient at some level is their own phenotype. And so the best way to group patients is going to de depend a lot on the population you're studying and the treatment under study. 
As I mentioned earlier, we have a lot of unanswered questions about these phenotypes, including whether these are actually phenotypes of ARDS or of critical illness more broadly. And I wonder if we someday might end up redefining critical illness, or at least the way we treat critical illness in trials away from syndromes and towards biological phenotypes or treatable traits. So someday might we actually be enrolling patients with endothelial dysfunction in a trial of new therapies, as opposed to patients with sepsis or ARDS per se. What's our group working on? We're doing additional biology-focused studies on candidate markers. We're doing metagenomic sequencing of tracheal aspirate and blood samples to identify host versus pathogen contributions. We're working on genetic analyses to try to identify heritable versus environmental contributions. We're continuing to work on assay development in prospective studies. Um, we have some data that we've just submitted for publication on real-world patients outside of randomized controlled trials, and I'll tell you the upshot is that we see a very similar pattern in observational cohorts and testing how these phenotypes relate to sepsis subtypes. So my take-home points here, I think heterogeneity may be obscuring our attempts to find an effective therapy for ARDS. We see these two distinct phenotypes with differential responses to mechanical ventilation, fluids, and pharmacotherapy. I do think bedside identification may be feasible soon. I think adaptive platform trials provide a really appealing route to test new approaches to ARDS treatment, both in biologically stratified and non-stratified settings. But I think we have to really stay humble about the biologic complexity we face um, and recognize that there may not be one best approach to identifying phenotypes of ARDS, and then it may depend on the treatment being studied. Uh, I just wanna emphasize this is very, very collaborative work. I wanna particularly highlight the contributions of Pratik Sinha, who's been the postdoc that did a lot of the work I showed you, as well as Kevin DeLuki and Danny McCauley. Um, this is some members of our group in the pre-COVID era, uh, back when we could all be together in person. Uh, and with that, I'll close and I'd be happy to take any questions. Thank you so much. That was um, such a lovely talk. And I think your, um, your ability to so easily describe the ARDS subphenotypes and the adaptive trial design platform is um, impressive as usual. Um, oh, thank you. I, I have probably 10 questions of my own, but I'm gonna see if anyone else has any questions first um, from the fellows or the faculty that are on here with us. Well, I'll, I'll ask one. Hi, Carolyn, this is Carl Shamholtz. Hi, Carl, you. how are you? Nice to see you. Yeah, great talk, love it. I always love hearing this. Um, and, 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 and work derived from the horseshoe crab. Um, <laughs> That's right. I love that story. So I, I have a, I've, I've always had a problem trying to understand the, um, the mechanics of doing an adaptive design trial and whether there are statistical problems when you may have an intervention with multiple comparators and how do they handle that? Yeah, good question. So um, I will say that a lot of the statistics for these are definitely above my pay grade. But um, in iSpy2, traditionally, they have always compared the treat a single treatment to the control arm. Um, but they have not compared treatments to each other. And the reason for that, I think, is, um, is several. One is the issue you raise of multiple comparisons, 
right? Um, the other is that a, a really important piece of getting buy-in for these trials, a lot of which, particularly in oncology, right, these are all sort of novel agents being supplied by pharma. Pharma is really not interested in having their agent compared to the other pharma's hot agent, right? That is Thank not you. appealing to them. Um, they are more interested in having their agent compared to control. So that's how it's been set up in iSpy2. In iSpy COVID, we have also set it up as comparison to a common control group. Right now we have the randomization at um, two to one to one to one to one. So two patients randomized to control um, for every one patient randomized to the other four arms. And the plan is to um, analyze them each as sort of individual as if the other treatment arms did not exist. Um, but I can't give you a more sophisticated statistical answer than that, Carl. I'm sorry. Well, thank you. This is a great talk. Much appreciated. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Carolyn, you have a question from the fellows here. They're basically asking if the COVID patients are more hypoinflammatory, why do steroids work? And I think that's a great question. Yeah. And I think your Lancet paper recently looking at the HARP2 compared to the COVID patients and their inflammatory biomarkers for me was shocking. Um, maybe we're naive and we don't get inflammatory biomarkers in so many of our patients, like our bad flus and our H1N1, at least clinically we don't. But I was shocked to find that the inflammatory biomarkers weren't sky high. And so yeah. why, why are steroids effective in these patients then? Such a great question. And we also have been super interested in the fact that, um, you know, we, we published a paper and really a more of an opinion piece in JAMA Internal Medicine this summer on the cytokine storm, right? Uh, basically just describing that the IL-6 levels that have been published in COVID, while higher than normal patients in most cases are in many cases orders of magnitude lower than they are in um, patients with even hypoinflammatory ARDS, okay? Um, why, do, why do steroids work? I have no idea. So let me just start with that, but I can give you some theories. So one is that Recall that everything we're looking at here is in the plasma, okay? So we're looking at plasma markers. What's actually happening in the lung? What's actually happening in the alveolus may be totally different, right? We are, there's some really interesting studies done by Mark Werfel's group in, uh, up in Washington showing that, you know, alveolar macrophages and peripheral blood mononuclear cells really have different gene expression patterns, right, in patients with ARDS. So we may have a totally different biology in the lung than we're seeing in, um, in the plasma. My expectation, so I, I, you can probably tell from my initial slides, I'm not a steroid believer in ARDS in general, and I was highly skeptical of the um, recovery trial data at first, but I am now a believer, and I think it's, I mean, how could you not be right? But, but uh, I really, I think this has to be our standard of care at present in COVID, um, but I don't know why it is. But my, my best guess would be um, sort of a different inflammatory profile uh, between the lungs and the plasma. It also may be, think about that, that slide I showed from uh, Neela Meyer's paper on IL-1RA, right? It may be actually that the patients with the lower IL-6 levels and the lower inflammatory markers are the ones that are going to benefit from steroids. We, we think that that's not the case, but it may be. I would love to see an analysis of, I mean, this is not possible in recovery because they don't have plasma, but I'd love to see an analysis of uh, IL-6 levels in patients with and without dexamethasone treatment and to see which subgroup of patients potentially benefits more from dexamethasone. Yeah, I would, I would also love to see that, so. Yeah. 
You have another question here saying you've said that it's a misnomer to call it hyper and hypoinflammatory that perhaps we should be cautious about those words. And I do think we say hyperinflammatory. People think, oh, I should give steroids. That's a great anti-inflammatory. So yeah. if you had to go back for your phenotyping paper and all the work that's been done, what would you call it instead? Oh my gosh, Noel, please come and help me with that problem. I don't know. Critique and I, when we were writing one of our more recent papers, we went round and round about it. He said, well, let's call them hyperinflammatory and non-hyperinflammatory. And we tried that and boy, it's just a mouthful. I wish I had been, you know, just stuck with like class one and class two and just given them numbers because I, I think right now we just don't understand the, uh, the real driving features of the biology. So if I'd go back, if I could go back in time, I'd just call them A and B, one and two, <laughs> gamma, and I don't know. With the sepsis um, phenotypes, and that's confusing, I think, the alpha, beta, gamma, I, I don't know. That's also sort of confusing. It, it is confusing, and that's why it, I can just tell you writing about it is why we ended up adopting a shorthand, because mm -hmm. it becomes very unwieldy when you're writing papers about it. But um, I just want to make sure that everybody really understands that we don't actually know that those are the fundamental aspects of pathogenesis. Um, Noel asks also, uh, Noel, by the way, is a, a PhD student in Allison Morris's lab at Pitt. So, oh, great. Yeah. So she said, are there corresponding biobanking efforts with these fantastically designed clinical trials? So great question. Recovery does not have any biobanking. So that you know how the UK, they love their pragmatic trials, right? Very like streamlined data forms, um, you know, for instance, like we don't talk about this anymore, but 2,000 patients were excluded from randomization to dexamethasone or usual care in the recovery trial because their physician didn't think it was appropriate for them to be randomized. We have no idea why that is. So that's like one of those little alarm bells that I always worry about with dexamethasone, but they have these very streamlined case report forms and similarly, they don't get biobanks. Remap cap, uh, it's a good question. I don't know if they have a biobank or not. Um, we do in Ice by COVID, we have a, a biobank right now that's just blood at the moment, um, but we're considering um, with the, uh, some additional BARDA funding, we're considering expanding that to also get respiratory specimens because we've been doing in some of my other work, some really interesting analyses of tracheal aspirate specimens from patients with COVID. It's a little, complex from a biosafety standpoint um, to handle them, but really, really interesting uh, data that emerges. So I'm hoping that we can add that to ICE by COVID. But for now, we definitely have blood for, for plasma, RNA, and DNA. Um, Carolyn, should we stop using the term ARDS, do you think? Oh, so that's a really great question, Andy, um, uh, and very controversial. So <laughs> we recently, about a, a year ago, pre-COVID, um, NHLBI had a workshop on precision medicine and ARDS, and this topic was raised, and everybody sort of went, oh, <laughs> you know, because I think, um, I think it, it, it's, it is a relevant question, and I think if we, if we start to if we start to see that these phenotypes are uh, agnostic to syndromic definition, um, then I think we will really have to think carefully about the utility of clinical syndrome definitions. I mean, let's be real. The definition of ARDS has contributed to huge advancements in critical care medicine, right? The development of lung protective ventilation, probably most importantly among those. So I think that the definition has had great utility, but it may be that for certain 
trials and certain treatment approaches, we want to start thinking differently about our patients. We want to start thinking, as I was saying, about a treatable trait, about patients with lung epithelial injury or endothelial injury um, or some more sort of specific clinical and or biologic phenotype um, that denotes a more treatment responsive group. But how that transition would ever get made, um, I don't know. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm, my whole life is anchored in the definition of ARDS, right? So how, how would we think about changing that? Uh, it's hard to know. Yeah, or at least maybe thinking more about it as, as including ARDS secondary too, when we think about people with ARDS and thinking about what that means in ter terms of the phenotypes maybe. I know you've done some work on the direct and indirect causes of ARDS and is that different yeah. in terms of their molecular markers, but you know, I, I think we've lumped, and I'm a lumper in general, but maybe we've lumped all these things together that are not really the same, and has that ultimately limited the results of our clinical trials and really been a disservice to science and patients, because we say we say that drugs don't work, but maybe we're just lumping a whole bunch of people together that really don't have the same disease process. Yeah, no, and, and I agree. I tend to be a lumper in general as well, uh, with, you know, in, in many cases with regards to treatment. But I think if you stop back and you think about, whenever I feel overwhelmed by ARDS, I think, oh gosh, at least I'm not dealing with sepsis, right? <laughs> Take a step back from sepsis, right? We're talking, you, you have like a 21-year-old with a viral um, meningitis and a 78-year-old with urosepsis. Like, those are really different biologic patterns and we're lumping them both under the rubric of sepsis and those are both patients that have definite infection think about how many patients with sepsis we never even really know if they're infected so uh, i do think we have a lot of room for improvement in terms of the precision of our um, ability to understand what's going on with these patients uh, who fit into one of these syndromic categories uh, on a more um, molecular level <clears throat> I have one more two-part question while I'm kind of just manning the chat box here, but um, you, I, I've heard Derek Angus talk many times as well. I know he talks about the stadium, build the stadium. Um, so the, the, the question here is, do you think we should build more stadiums and have them in place? And I think your answer is going to be yes. Then my second question is, how do you pick the drugs for the platform? And I assume that you have to you have to know that if your first interim analysis shows that drug A is effective, that becomes essentially your placebo or your, everyone has to receive that. So, so then your drugs have to be able to play nicely together, right? Um, yes. So how do you, how do you have the insight and the knowledge kind of look forward and say, okay, we want to study ARDS. We should have a stadium built. COVID is going to continue. Flu season is going to come. Let's build the stadium. And then how do you know what drugs to include? And, and, and how do you, you know, how did you do that? Yeah, what a great question. I mean, I can tell you how we're doing it in Ice by COVID. So just earlier this morning, we had our biweekly agents committee. So we basically have a committee of investigators that are both, and the committee is made up of a, a variety of folks. It's made up of the clinical trial investigators. It's also made up of, um, we have pharmacologists on there. We have um, folks from the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, we have people from the lab who study ARDS in lab settings. And it's basically a, a group of experts and we have different agents presented to us. Um, in some cases, they're presented by pharmaceutical companies. In some cases, they're presented by, um, by investigators that think they have a particularly promising drug and they give like a 10 to 15 minute presentation. And then if we're interested, we sort of take a deeper dive and we have a subcommittee that goes and really starts thinking about the logistics involved, the nitty gritty. 
Um, each drug has several chaperones, um, which are basically the investigators that are responsible for um, really sort of chaperoning that agent through the trial, which is a nice way to get a lot of people involved and given what a big effort these are. Um, and yeah, so that's how we've approached it. Um, it's obviously been challenging in COVID, especially at first, um, because we didn't know that much about the biology, but I think it's actually uh, getting easier in some ways as we learn more about the biology, as we learn more about um, how to take care of these patients safely. But then I think something we haven't had to face yet in ice by COVID is what you alluded to. So if we do find a successful agent, how do we transition that into the backbone? Um, you know, I, I'm starting to wonder a little bit about remdesivir being in our backbone, right? Oh, we're not gonna take it away right now, but with more and more, you know, data coming out questioning remdesivir, uh, you know, how would we think about dropping that from a backbone? So um, there's definitely, it's definitely requires a lot more ongoing engagement than a traditional clinical trial where like there's lots of work up front to set it up and then it sort of runs and you, you do have to deal with things as they come up. But, you know, there's this constant uh, new challenges with an adaptive trial, but that's for me at least been part of the, the fun learning about these things. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, David Gordon, I'm not sure I understand your comment or question here. So if you want to unmute yourself and ask it so I don't, I don't screw it up, that would be awesome. Oh, I, I was just saying that I think one of the things that we were saying was that we have all these different, you know, we might have all these different kind of ARDS phenotypes and that ARDS is a broad category. It's just a category of disease and that as we look for treatments, we might be finding treatments that we're not, we're not serving our patients well because we're applying these really broad treatments and they may only work for a subset of, of the diseases which I think was kind of the point of this. And I think you see uh, one of the topics or one of the sub parts of your talk, you know, had a lot to do with the overlap with oncology work. Specifically, I know in adaptive trials, but that's also happened a lot in oncology, right? Especially with the evolution of microRNAs where you can drill down on these different types of cancer and find a different m drug that may work specifically for that kind of phenotype and that kind of cancer. Yeah, absolutely. And I think in your comment in the chat, you alluded to drugs that ended up on the cutting room floor. And I think there are probably a lot of drugs for ARDS that I would certainly be curious to know whether they worked in subsets of patients or not. Um, and we, as I think as we learn more about the biology of what's actually driving these phenotypes, then it may help us to make more intelligent guesses as to which of those drugs that seemed to cure mouse ARDS might actually work for one or the other phenotypes. Um, good, good question, comment, David. Um, Noel says, I'm sure that Tom Petty and David, uh, David Ashbaugh felt like they were changing the paradigm of critical illness, uh, much like this discussion of abandoning yeah. it as a diagnosis would be too. Yeah, definitely. And please, you know, I'm not advocating for a abandoning ARDS. I, I think we're not there yet for sure. Um, and it, it's been, it's been very useful. Um, Fahid is clearly excited about the use of steroids in ARDS. He's saying, I'm a big lumper as well. I was excited about the DEX ARDS trial, the Velar trial. Do you, what do you yeah. think about using steroids for moderate to severe ARDS given the work of the phenotyping that you've done in, in the state of the Velar trial also coming out? Yeah, what a good question. I feel like, I remember one of my mentors, uh, Michael Mathe, telling me when I was uh, an eager young critical care fellow, Oh, Carolyn, patients die, but steroids never will. 
Um, and uh, uh, I feel like the steroids debate has been one that's been raging for 50 years, right? If you go back actually to the original Ashbaugh and Petty description in The Lancet, they describe, they have a whole little paragraph on corticosteroids and it says something like, um, we saw that corticosteroids worked well for some patients and didn't work well for other patients. <laughs> so I strongly suspect that there is a group of patients with ARDS, non-COVID ARDS, for whom steroids work. But I do not have any confidence in my own ability to identify that group. Um, I think the data, um, you know, you can find studies and the DEXA ARDS is probably the most compelling one, though that trial has some issues. Um, you can find studies that support steroids, you can find studies that refute steroids. I think it's clear that there's not an overwhelming signal for benefit in ARDS, or we would have seen it after 50 years. Um, but I would guess that there is a subgroup in there that responds well to treatment, but I don't know how to find it yet. How close are you, do you think, to having that bedside um, cytokine or inflammatory biomarker tool, the nanopore equivalent or the ISTAT, yeah. whatever it is, where we can get someone's blood and say, oh, IL-6 is crazy high. I mean, we send out our IL-6s in COVID patients, the patient's dead before the IL-6 comes back. Yeah, right. And then there's a lot of variability in those clinical IL-6 tests. I can tell you from trying to work with some of that data in COVID, they're, they're really all over the map. So. The Randox assay, um, it's interesting that com the company has pivoted a lot of their emphasis to rapid COVID tests. Um, we're still working on the FIND trial, so I think they are still interested and, um, and you know, we plan to com complete that trial, which is around 450 patients. I think if that trial is positive, that they'll continue to be, you know, that we can show that we can actually implement phenotyping uh, effectively, that they will be interested. And they're not the only company that is interested. There are lots of other companies interested, but it, I've learned that the diagnostics market in critical care is apparently extremely challenging um, for reasons that I don't totally understand, but um, a lot of companies are, are interested if there is a drug that they can pair with it, but not always as interested if there isn't. So, We've been in a little bit of a catch-22 where it's hard to demonstrate the need for the test without having the test to actually do it. But I, I think with this new assay, we're getting closer to getting out of that catch-22, but it's, it's definitely not ready yet. Anyone else have any questions? Yeah, so I have one last question. Um, there's a reason why we, you know, after 30 years ago, we were designing studies with short-term intermediate endpoints that were very bad at predicting um, clinically significant uh, patient-specific uh, endpoint, um, patient-relevant endpoints, and why we finally designed bigger trials for mortality. Michael was, you know, wrote a lot of the editorials that led to the formation of the ARDSnet so that we would have adequately powered studies. So if you were to design a non-COVID ARDS adaptive design trial now, what would you use as a surrogate endpoint? Because we've been disappointed with biomarkers. Sorry, Carolyn. Um, no, I agree. I don't think they're good surrogate endpoints. Yeah. yeah, it's such a good question, Carl. So I can tell you at this um, NIH workshop last fall, this was a subject of lots of debate. And it was an interesting workshop because it was basically like 60% ARDS experts and then like 40% outside experts from other fields 
um, that have made a lot of progress in precision medicine. So um, Laura Esserman was there from oncology, um, folks from the Precise Network in asthma, Roger Lewis, who's worked with the Remap Cap group and with Derek's group. And we had this whole question of, of you know, the problems with mortality uh, as an endpoint in ARDS and what should our short-term endpoint be? And basically everybody from the outside groups was like, I'm sorry, what is your problem with mortality? They were like, you have a short-term endpoint that is highly patient relevant in mortality. Yes, we acknowledge that like not all of the uh, mortality is actually driven by ARDS and that you may need to get to larger sample sizes that Bayesian approaches can help mitigate that in part. Um, and we, we sort of went round and round should be using something around oxygenation, et cetera. And they were all, all the outside non-ARDS people were like, you guys need to get over yourselves and just use mortality as your endpoint. <laughs> Um, so I, th I mean, I do think I've been interested as we've been doing this ice by COVID trial and, and thinking it through this time to recovery um, endpoint. I do think is worth considering in a way. Um, it's not entirely clean, but I think it may help us sort out this issue of outcome related to ARDS versus outcome related to all of these other factors. I mean, not entirely, right? Because obviously patients that are highly frail and debilitated will have longer time to recovery, but um, well, I think that's of, worth considering. We sort of went through that with the Lazarus trial. We got we <laughs> steroids in the RDS and we got people off the ventilator faster and then they died at the same rate ultimately. Yeah, yeah, yeah right, exactly. And so then there's the problem. So um, I can tell you that the consensus of this group at the workshop was um, was definitely that you know mortality is is really important um but recognizing that it's not a perfect endpoint thank you uh i had a this is uh david gordon again i i have another question it's, it's kind of i guess like dr shan holtz's question kind of a bigger question than drilling down on your talk but um this seems like a lot of very kind of like cutting edge um pushing us in terms of what we know and how we think kind of work, which is awesome. And I really appreciate that. I'm wondering if doing this in one part of critical care makes you question kind of what you know or what we know in the, in the world of critical care and really in a lot of the dogma that we accept as being passed down. Well, it's a good, it's a good question. And I, I, let me try to answer what I think you're asking. I mean, as I alluded to earlier, it definitely makes me query how we approach sepsis, right? Which I think, um, no wonder we have not found a, uh, um, you know, a pharmacotherapy other than, of course, antibiotics that works for sepsis, um, because we are, we are lumping together all these patients who have everything from viral to fungal infection, and many that probably actually don't have infection or not an infection that we can identify. So I, I, it has made me think that I, um, you know, our syndromic approaches to disease classification have served us well in terms of many supportive therapies, um, but have not served us particularly well in terms of trying to translate the knowledge that we have from biology focused models in the lab into patients. Um, so I would say in that sense, it has made me rethink um, that. It has not made me, um, 
rethink uh, sort of my, my fundamental approaches to um, evidence-based treatment, I would say, of ARDS and sepsis, because I think, you know, for instance, lung protective ventilation was beneficial overall in patients with ARDS, and I think we should continue to apply that. And that's, an, you know, as I mentioned earlier, an example of where that syndromic definition has saved hundreds of thousands of lives. Um, so I think there's still plenty of role for lumping, but um, but we I, I, do, I do think in critical care, particularly for trials of novel agents, we need to be thinking about doing more splitting. Awesome, thank you very much for that answer. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Carolyn, I, I think this talk was great. I, I'm so happy we got to have you here. I was saying to her at the start of the talk, we started discussions about her coming to talk here, obviously pre-COVID almost a year ago and, and how it seems like a whole different world now. Um, but I'm really happy people could hear you talk about ARDS and adaptive platforms. I think this is really the way research is going. And I hope that people who are listening here, young um, physicians and scientists kind of think about participating in adaptive platform trials because I think it's important. It's probably gonna be the most efficient and effective way to get answers to the questions we're all asking you. Um, and so I think it's really sort of inspiring and, and um, nice to hear about these trials and, and what we have to learn. So I really thank you for coming and joining us and, and, and sharing with us. I hope that one day we can actually have you here. And if we can't have you here, I hope that one day myself and my fellows can actually see you speak at ATS again in, in actual person. Oh, well, thank you guys so much for the invitation. It was really wonderful to have a chance to be with you virtually. And I, I really hope we can all be together in person again soon. Thank you so much. Be safe. We'll be in touch. Thank you. You too. Take care, you guys.